I invite you this morning to the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. Hebrews 11. In a few moments, we'll begin reading at verse 23 and read down through verse 31. Hebrews 11. Take a moment of privilege here to say thank you again. I don't think we say this often enough to our musicians, our choir, Nathan, the whole group up here. Guys, I, every Sunday as I worship, as I sing, I stop and thank God. I truly do for his gifting to you and your willingness to use those gifts for your church and for our gathered worship. And I don't know that we say thank you for that often enough. Uh, deeply, deeply appreciate that. I appreciate those who lead us in prayer, the reading of your word. Um, we try to give a great deal of thought to what we do every Sunday morning. And we hope that in us giving great thought to it, it leads you to a better place to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We want him to be honored. Hebrews, the 11th chapter, we begin reading at verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. They were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is God's word to us. Let's pray. And now, our Father, grant by your Spirit that we rightly hear and believe and obey this, your glorious word. Thank you for this great gift. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, we're told by the Apostle Paul in uh, Timothy about the nature of the word of God and that it is there to make us wise unto salvation and it's also there to teach us about living. And 
thinking about it in those terms, the Word of God comes and really it does address us in two particular ways. It is either showing you, if you're not a Christian, how to be a Christian, or it is showing you now that you are a Christian, here's how you should live, here's how you should think, here's how you should behave. And those are really the only options. The Scripture is not primarily a book for scholarship, although scholarship can be an aid in interpreting the text. It is a word that comes to us in our very living and confronts us with the reality of a God who is there and challenges us. Is this the God in whom you believe? Are you at peace with him? Have you accepted his terms for peace? And if you have done so, how are you living in light of that peace with him? When I read this 11th chapter, elements of it are easier, I think, to think through well. Uh, for the most part, when you read about Abel and Enoch and Noah, it's fairly easy for the emphasis to be upon their success, their faithfulness. They were good and godly men. They had some minor flaws here and there. But the further you go, it gets a little harder. I mean, Abraham's fairly straightforward, but Isaac makes you wonder because you scratch your head a little bit. Jacob, show enough, makes you wonder. And now we, we look at Moses and our spirits are lifted and we oh yes, good fellow, amen. And then we go to the very people of Israel. And when we read those accounts, that's another one. We're saying these people live by faith. Yes, brothers and sisters, they did. See, there is, and there has, and I will say this, there has been a tendency, at least in the generation of which I'm a part, where biblical characters, I think, were too much and often wrongly turned into moral examples, and the primary preaching was, be like these people. It's what uh, Brian Chappell called in preaching, the deadly bees. And this was one of them be like. Now, in reaction to that, we have said, no, 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 you're not called to be like these people. You're called to be like Jesus. Well, that sounds real spiritual and it's real good. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's intriguing, is it not, that the Scripture uses these folks in two fashions. Jesus will say, remember Lot's wife, Bad example, don't do what she did. Paul in Corinthians will talk about the people of Israel not doing what God called them to do. So the Scripture never hides the flaws, the failures, the foibles of these people. But that's not all the text says. One brother put it this way, there are not just negative examples used in the New Testament, there are positive examples. 
And the passage we're looking at today, and he was preaching from this text, is going to give us positive examples. In fact, it's going to give us these positive examples, and included there, Moses and the children of Israel as a whole. Now, when I read that, you see, in my mind, it's so much easier to have this very strict bifurcation. Good people, bad people. And there's never an overlap. But the Scripture is filled as it talks about the people of God that we are this maddening mixture. Good and bad. God uses that. And God does such surprising things. If I mention Joy Davidman, how many of you know who I'm talking about? Okay, you, you people get a gold star when we leave today. Joy Davidman was the wife of C.S. Lewis. And this is how she described her conversion. And it was a conversion from atheistic Marxism. Here's what she said when she talked about her conversion. It is infinite, unique, there are no words, there are no comparisons. Those who have known God will understand me. The others, I find, can neither listen nor understand. There was a person with me in that room, directly present to my consciousness. A person so real that all my previous life was by comparison a mere shadow. And I myself was more alive than I'd ever been. It was like waking from sleep. She was stunned to find herself on her knees. And here's what she said. I just say I was the world's most surprised atheist. Wow. What a glorious description of conversion. I was the world's most surprised atheist. You see, my friends, the Lord does extraordinary things. He does things we don't anticipate. And, and our tendency, will we not acknowledge this even as believers? Far too often we live thoughtlessly, without regard for God's promise and God's presence and what God is doing. We, we live at times even as believers nearly half asleep. And what we see here is the believer is to live by faith, by seeing the one who is invisible. That phrase, right in the midst of these verses, at the end of verse 27, describing Moses, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. What a beautifully majestic and accurate description. So consider with me two main things. First, faith's loyalty, seeing the invisible. Now, how do we talk about this? What do we mean when we talk about seeing the invisible? Well, first it shows up this way. Faith fears the invisible. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. 
Now, you go back in the Old Testament, and you remember the story, the first chapter of the book of Exodus, the children of Israel have multiplied many, many times over, and a new Pharaoh has arisen, and he knew nothing of the history of Joseph and the people of Israel, and he has enslaved the people. And yet they continue to grow, and he's fearful of this. And so he gives the edict, the order, that every male child born to the Jews is to be drowned, put to death. But Amram and Jochebed, yes, that's Moses' parents. And some of you would have known that too, and you get two gold stars today. See this boy, and they won't do it. Now, they already had a daughter, Miriam. They already had another son, Aaron. But this little boy is born. And we don't know all that went into that. We do know this. Josephus, in his uh, works, records that Amram had had a vision from God regarding Moses. We're not told that in the text. And I don't know that it's even necessary. What we know is that their faith made them fearless of Pharaoh. And so they hide him for months. And it's getting harder to hide him. And the only solution they can come up with is we hide him in the house, they're searching the house, so we can't have him in the house. So they built him an ark. Okay, it's a basket, but it's kind of an ark, right? It's, it, it'll float, it's watertight. But did you ever think about where they're hiding this boy? In the Nile. Now the Nile was considered a god to the Egyptians. And beyond that, the Nile had a critter and still does crocodiles. How do you go about putting a three month old in crocodile infested water? Now, please hear what I'm about to say. There is nowhere in the text that says, Go thou and do likewise. Please do not over apply and wrongly apply the text. This was unique. This was extraordinary. You have the impression that they were keeping a pretty close eye. Their view of God was he was bigger than Pharaoh. He's bigger than the Nile. And he's bigger than the crocodiles. Faith fears the invisible. See, folks, if you fear God, it makes you where you don't fear anybody else. But that is a beginning point. Do you actually fear, respect, reverence the Lord? Yes, faith's loyalty, seeing the invisible. Part of this is fearing God. But it's also faith chooses the invisible. At verse 24, then we're told more about Moses. Moses, whose name literally granted by the princess, Pharaoh's daughter. It's an Egyptian word that meant to draw out, and that's what she called him. She drew him out of the water. Remember the story? She finds him, and she's down in the Nile bathing, and she adopts this child. And I, I love this part of the story, and I, I love how another brother said it. The Lord was so determined to do deliverance by Moses that he decided to have him raised by Pharaoh's daughter and his nanny be his mama 
who would tell him all the stories of Egypt. And so Pharaoh gets the best education available, is in the top position in Egypt, all on Satan's nickel to be the deliverer of the people of God. He begins, and we know the story. He attempts it, but it doesn't work well on the beginning. He grows up. He refuses to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chooses rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. How do you reject wealth, power, privilege, and position? It's because you are captured by someone far greater and better than all those things. Oh, brothers and sisters, hear me when I say this. I'm thankful we live in a nation where we have the opportunity to voice our opinions and to vote and make choices. But friend, don't ever lose sight of something. Not everybody that seeks the office is seeking the common good. It is just a simple fact and a reality. With greater power usually comes greater wealth and greater privilege and honor and far too often a forgetting of principle and ethic. Not always. I'm not going to paint with that broad a brush. But friends, for you and I to miss that is to miss. And the danger for us is to be tempted to that thing ourselves. How do you reverse that Stephen in his sermon in Acts chapter 7 will say Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds when he was 40 years old it came into his heart to visit his brothers the children of Israel and seeing one of them being wronged he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand but they did not understand How does living in light of who's invisible and our faith in him? Faith chooses the invisible. Understand Moses had no indication in a temporal fashion of a reward, and yet he lived for that reward. What is he living for? It's the same thing Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 4. This light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient but the things that are unseen are eternal. Martin Luther had a friend ask him one time, when everybody turns against you, where will you be? And Luther replied, right where I am now in the hands of Almighty God. Moses makes this choice. He walks away from it. Faith chooses the invisible. Faith obeys the invisible. 
By faith, verse 27, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover, sprinkled the blood, so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. Now, as you read this and you think through what's going on here, I mean, at one point, we're told in verse 26, he considered the reproach of Christ of greater value. What did Moses know of Christ? Not nearly as much as you and I know. And yet he knew there was a deliverer greater than him coming. He knew by the promise that someone was coming from the Lord who would be a great deliverer. And he lived in light of that invisible reality. Moses chose the imperishable, saw the invisible, did the impossible. Vance Havner always had a great way of words. Moses was, if you will, something of a forerunner to Elisha who could see the invisible. You remember, Elisha's sitting there in the city at home and the army's all around him and his servants, hey, we're going to get out of here. They've got us surrounded. There's no way to get out. What are we going to do? I'm, I'm sorry, I made that up. But in the Hebrew, I think it's how it sounded. <laughs> and I read it, 2 Kings 6. He said, do not, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses, and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now let me let you in on a little secret here. You know how Elisha knew that? Because the Lord had already opened his eyes to see it. It wasn't that Elisha was more spiritual. It was that God had done a gracious thing in Elisha that he hadn't done in the servant. Some of y'all saying, well, I just, need, I just need to get more spiritual so I can see what's invisible. No, what you need is to believe and obey God and grow in grace and maturity. And as you see things, don't pat yourself on the back. Be thankful that God showed you something. Some of you get cocky. And you wonder why you don't get anything else happening in your life. It's because you think you did something to gain this when God graciously is the one that handed it to you. Get over yourself. I'm here to tell you, as your pastor, your shepherd, your friend, you're just not that spiritual. But God is that gracious. It shows up in the Passover. That glorious story. Many of you, no doubt, have seen, and I've mentioned this before, there's a wondrous clip out there on YouTube, I think it is, of D.A. Carson talking about the Passover. And I'm going to borrow this because it's too good not to. And I can't do it exactly the way he did, but here's the long and the short of it. Two Jewish fellows talking. All right? Jeff and Lance, good Jewish names. And uh, Jeff and Lance are talking, and Lance says, "Hey, Jeff, are, did you? I mean, are you ready for tonight? Have you done the, got your lamb, and you're going to do this?" And Jeff said, "Yeah, absolutely, already ready to go. Going to put the blood on the doorposts." And Lance says, "But you know, I'm I'm a little nervous about this thing tonight. I mean, we've seen those other plagues, 
nine of them, how people died, and God has just killed them. And the death angel's coming tonight, the angel of death. And I, I'm, are, are you not a little concerned? And Jeff, no, I'm not concerned. God told Moses, Moses told us, he'll keep his promise. I'm putting the blood on the doorpost. You're going to do that, aren't you? Well, yeah, I'm going to do it. Of course I'm going to do it. And they both put the blood on the doorposts. And the angel of death comes that night. Now, does the angel of death pass over both Jeff's and Lance's houses? Yes, he does. Because it's not the quality of the faith. It's that they have done and trusted what he said he'd do. They didn't have to trust it perfectly. They just had to trust. See, some of you spend all your time analyzing the quality of your faith. You're always looking at it. You're, well, do I have the, how much faith do I have? Do I have enough faith to do this, this, and this? It's, it's a little like the person who kept coming to Mr. Spurgeon and, and, and came and said, oh, Mr. Spurgeon, I just, I, I'm so afraid of dying. I don't know if I'm going to have the faith I need to die. I don't know if I have the grace I need to die. And Spurgeon said, you're dying? Oh, no, I'm not dying. I just mean when I, will you stop it? You're worried about a faith and a grace you don't need yet. When you need it, you'll have it. How about focusing on the living? <sighs> Listen to Lig Duncan. He said that Moses identifies himself with God's people and we're told that he considered the reproach of Christ better than anything the world could give him. In other words, Moses listens to God's word over the world's edicts. He values Christ's reproach over the world's rewards and he trusts in the provision of his blood. Friends, this is something that we all struggle with today. More and more Christians, church-going Christians, want the world to like us. We want the world to think well of us, and we do not want to bear the reproach of Christ in the eyes of the world. And so we do what we can to cozy up to the world so we can be friends with the world. And this passage is telling us that's not how Moses thought. Moses wanted to hear, well done, good and faithful servant from Jesus, not from the world. Loyalty. Living by faith is loyalty in seeing him who's invisible. But consider next, verses 29 to 31, not just faith's loyalty, but faith's victory, seeing the invisible. We're told in verse 29, the people crossed the Red Sea. Now, we can't take time to get into all this. I know the whole scholarly debate, was it the Red Sea, was it the Sea of Reeds? The Hebrews, Yam Suf, it may have been the Sea of Reeds, we're not exactly sure. Let's just stop here and say it this way. There's enough water that a whole bunch of people couldn't cross it, and enough water that it drowned an army. So whether it's the Yam Suf, the, the, the Sea of Reeds, or the Red Sea, or I don't know, Perkins Lake, it was enough water to drown an army. I know that scholarly interpretation there was of great assistance to you. I look at this, and here's what stands out to me. 
By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. <laughs> have you read that story? I'm serious. Have you read the story? I don't see a whole lot of faith there. I mean, they have seen ten plagues poured out on Egypt, and they get to the water, and not enough graves in Egypt, eh? Gonna let us die out of here. Great job, Moses. Fine leadership qualities. And the Lord, and Moses says, stand still, relax. You're going to see the deliverance of the Lord. And then we get another little segue. It's kind of like Moses goes off by himself, and the Lord says, why are you whining at me? Go out there and do what I, t-. this is a paraphrase, but this is what it looks like to me. All the people are having a fit. Moses, calm down, it's going to be fine. I'm going to go pray. Lord, what in the world are we going to do? And he divides the sea. He protects them. They walk across safely. And then it collapses on them. Now think about this. They're not a particularly faithful group of people. There's probably a million of them, if not more. They were very quick to complain, and they weren't well organized. The only ones I see with any faith in this setting, truthfully, Moses, and even his is attenuated. Aaron, maybe. And I'm guessing Joshua and Caleb, but I don't know it. Doubtless there were others, but I don't think they were in the majority. Unless God should prove himself the God of the impossible, there was no chance of survival for so weak and ill-ordered a multitude. And yet with such a weak and sporadic faith, God acted in a mighty way. My friend, God can deliver you from your enemies even when your faith is not great. Remember, God values faith so highly, even weak faith, that he will never crush it. He'll never snuff it out. He'll never say, oh, come on, you can do better than that. You don't expect me to act when you... That little tiny bit of faith, that's insulting. Oh, my friend, if this isn't grace on the part of God, he looks and sees that little tiny glowing just an ember on the end of a wick of a candle that's smoking and says, there it is. And he acts in glorious power. When Abraham pleaded for Sodom and Gomorrah, he revealed something about God's character. God was willing to allow both those cities to live if there are only ten righteous people. And there's no righteousness without faith, and God values it so highly, he blesses it with his action and his mercy. Folks, do you understand why America isn't already wiped out? Because there's still people of God here. I know people, well, we've got to change things. We've got to get political solutions. Folks, I'm glad to do anything that's ethical, moral, and the right thing to do. But please lay hold of this. God will show all kinds of mercy if his people are present. All kinds of mercy. And even to people who obviously don't deserve it. Faith defeats the opposition. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. Now, here are the sons of daughters of those who have seen the miracles of Egypt. 
and they've seen the miracles of the desert, but they're nervous about going into the land. And yet the Lord brings up a new generation. The new generation isn't necessarily any more upright than their parents. Their feet are barely, <laughs> barely dry from crossing at the Jordan River, and they see the water stop, and it starts again. And they come to the first major challenge to taking their inheritance, promised first to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the city of Jericho. Jericho was not a large city. It was small overall, but it was heavily walled. It prevented invaders from access to the main valleys, and part of central, it was uh, essential to the security of central Canaan. We read in Joshua the sixth chapter, Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I've given Jericho into your hand, and its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you'll march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout. And the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. What a, what a procession that was. You ever think about that? Military procession led by seven priests. They go around the city once. You see the city. Okay, here they come. Here they, oh. Okay. They're gone. What was that about? Six days. Seventh day, they're kind of bored with the whole thing. Well, there they go. They'll be going, oh, they're going again. Did they lose count? Well, this is different. What are they going to, there they go again. From the shofar, the ram's horns are blown, and the people shout. And God takes walls and simply collapses them. And they gain the city. But oh my, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she'd given a friendly welcome to the spies. You see, my friend, faith by the grace of God defeats opposition. The world laughs at prayer, but God answers it. The world laughs at preaching, but God uses it. The world laughs at mission work, but God blesses it. And here we come to this place, and of all the things that should have happened, this isn't one of them. One lone prostitute in a pagan city is really of absolutely no importance whatsoever. In the grand scheme of things. And yet what we read in the text is, as the spies come into the city before the walls collapse, before the military operation, word gets out that there they are, and so they have to hide, and this prostitute hides them, lies about it, and they escape. And they, what, should, what do you want us to do for you? Well, we've heard about you. And boy, you read in the text, it is such a powerful thing. We already heard about you. We know promise that me and my family will be spared. See, she changed sides. Yeah, let me say it this. She was extraordinarily unpatriotic. 
She didn't pledge to the Jericho flag. Wow. Well, that's a small thing, isn't it? Listen to John Owen. Nothing, no person, no sin is to be despaired of in whose cure sovereign almighty grace is engaged. My friends, you know people that are very unchristian. You know folks that are very much not, doesn't seem like there's anything in them that would be inclined. Do you understand that if sovereign grace sets its heart on them, they will be converted. God will do it. Hmm. See, this is what upset the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Jesus said, um, truly I say to you, tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 6, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that's a fundamentalist preacher's delight. You can preach about that. You ain't going. And folks, it's true. This is absolutely the very word of God. That is true. But if you leave out the next verse, you've missed something vital. And such were some of you. Not all. Such were some of you. Well, what happened? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. James tell us, tells us Rahab was justifi justified by her works. What was her work? She left the rope hanging out the window. And after they decimate Jericho, Rahab and her family are rescued. So, well, okay, preacher, that's, that's cool, lovely. And Rahab, you know, lives a long life, eventually dies, etc. Ah, don't, don't get in a rush. This is why paying attention to the begats helps you. Genealogies. Because I read in Matthew's Gospel, the first chapter, verse 5. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David. My friends, faith is evidence of the grace of God and that grace is huge, encompassing, majestic, startlingly surprising. So I titled this, Seeing Him Who's Invisible. I'm reminded Jesus will say, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Peter will say, whom having not seen, you love and rejoice with a joy unspeakable and filled with glory. Faith's loyalty, seeing the invisible, teaches you to fear and to choose 
and to obey. Faith's victory in seeing the invisible delivers you from trouble, defeats opposition, and ultimately denies stereotypes. The Lord comes and saves. Grace is able to evoke faith in anyone. God can save any. Even though the confession may be slim in content, they may not be able to say all the right words in all the right ways. Genuine faith saves, rescues. Christian, here's what I want you to grasp here as we finish. If you're honest, you talk about just, when you talk about yourself, you just kind of scratch your head. Yeah. Okay. I wish I were better than I am. Right? Christians, we're all in the same boat here, right? You do wish you were better at this than you are. Friend, if you don't want to be better than you are, please quit calling yourself Christian. Just stop it. We want to do better. We want to be better. But isn't it a glorious thing to know that we are received and the getting better is his work, not ours? And there still ought to be this astonishment that of all the people you know, you're a Christian. Learn to see him who is invisible. Our Father, here we find ourselves again in this wondrous place. We have heard your word. It has been life to us. It has fed us. It has been light and convicted us. It is everything, Father, that we have needed this day. Remind us there are no accidents here. We are here by your purpose. Lord, I pray there's some here today that have had no intention of hearing anything that mattered, of doing anything about it. And my prayer, Lord, is that through this sermon, through these words, through this, your eternal word, you've brought them to saving faith. I pray they would count this day as the day they have trusted in Jesus as their only Savior and their only hope. For believers, Father, I pray that we would be so greatly encouraged that as feeble as our faith is, the majesty and glory and power of your goodness and grace and kindness to us through the work of Jesus Christ, your Son, is so overwhelming and so omnipotent that we are changed by it. Lord, we rejoice that we shall be counted among the faithful, even as these in Hebrews 11. May we endure seeing him who is invisible. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand.